Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 34. Psalm 34, hear now the word of our God. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. We, we saw last time that Psalm 33 was a quasi-acrostic, namely it has 22 stanzas, but it's not alphabetical. Psalm 34 is an actual acrostic, each verse beginning with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And as we saw last time, that pattern will be reproduced in the reverse in Psalms 37 and 38. Psalm 37 will be the actual acrostic, and then Psalm 38, the quasi-acrostic. And when you start seeing chiastic patterns in the Psalms, you should be watching for what's at the middle, and as I mentioned last time, and I'm saying it again because we're heading there, Psalms 35 and 36 are the two psalms that refer to David as the servant of the Lord. So David, the servant of the Lord, is at the center of this little mini-series in the, in the, towards the end of book one. And Psalm 35 will be another psalm of the cross. It will speak of the Davidic king as the servant of the Lord, and then Psalm 36 puts it in the title of David, the servant of the Lord. Hint, hint, I'm trying to tell you something here. So Psalms 33 and 34 are setting this up with a statement about the underlying reality of who God is and what God has said. Psalms 35 and 36 will focus on David, the suffering servant of the Lord. And then Psalms 37 and 38 remind us in the midst of the kingdom, with the king sitting on the throne, things are still not the way they should be. In other words, all the themes of book one structured in this little mini-series of six psalms that are showing us what God is doing in the midst of this age. Psalm 33, we saw last time, reminds us that 
God's word remains true. He is faithful. His steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 34 now sets us up for David, the servant of the Lord, with a song about how God redeems the life of his servants, plural, through the righteous one. If you watch singulars and plural throughout the psalm, there's the servants of the Lord, who God redeems their lives, through the righteous one, the one whose bones will not be broken. This is the psalm that will be quoted in John's Gospel when it points out not one of his bones was broken. This is, so Psalm 34 is telling us the righteous one whose bones are not broken is the one through whom God will redeem the life of his servants. Our New Testament lesson comes from 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Peter says that we should long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What does it mean to taste that the Lord is good? It, it's drawn from Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now just think about that for a moment. Taste and see. We, we do associate seeing and tasting you know, when you go out to eat at a nice restaurant, presentation matters. The food tastes better because of how it looks. But that's seeing and tasting. David says, taste and see. How does tasting God improve our sight? Over the last several months, I've been seeing more clearly myself. Uh, a key moment came when my friend David Covington said, 
Peter, you're not seeing your sin against God. You're so focused on the horizontal, how you've sinned against others, that you're missing your biggest sin. When we see our sin against God and before others, then we start to see clearly. After all, what does it mean to taste? What happens when you're tasting? When you take a bite of food, what are you doing? Uh, You could get strictly pragmatic and, okay, you're turning plant or animal matter into energy so that you can sort of... So, yeah, there's the the physiology of, of eating that's part of this. But remember that truth and beauty and goodness all go together in our eating. I mean, very few of us, I suspect, would be satisfied simply with the biological nourishment explanation of what food is for. If that's all it's for, just you know, grind it down to the smallest you know, amount you need and then just sort of like IV it into you and yeah, you don't need it. Anybody think that's a good idea for how we should live? Hopefully not. We want food that, yes, is good for us, that it tastes good, that satisfies us, not merely in the brute, basic animal need, but that nourishes our souls. We do talk about soul food, and there's a reason for that, because food is not just about nourishing our bodies. It also is, we are to to nourish us as human beings. And so David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. When you have tasted of the goodness of the Lord, when you have digested his kindness and mercy, what happens? Well, same thing with food. When you eat something, it becomes part of you. When you taste the Lord's goodness, it becomes part of you then you see that the Lord is good experientially, not just sort of an idea in your head. And that's why David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. If, if you're just sitting there listening to all this and saying, well, when I see it, then I'll believe it. How often have we said that? How often have we sort of held God at a distance and said, When I see it, then I'll believe it. David says, no, it's the other way around. Taste, and you will see. If you don't taste, you won't see. Okay, so how can we taste of God? Well, let us learn from his servant David as he speaks to us in Psalm 34, using the language of the senses to describe our experience of God. Much of the the sensory language in the Psalms starts with God's own actions. The eyes of the Lord see, the ears of the Lord hear. Does God have ears? Well, not if you mean biological, physical ears. But God's ears are the things that really, really hear, because they hear everything. Our ears were created as as sort of finite analogs of God's ear. God's ear, I mean, again, if you, if, if you get it backwards and you think that God has ears like us, that's the wrong way of thinking. But God hears everything. Therefore, our ears were created to let us hear some things. God's eyes see everything. So he gave us eyes so that we could see something. 
our finite creaturely ability to see and hear is modeled after his infinite divine ability to see and hear. And Psalm 34 calls us to now use our senses, these things that were created to give, in order that we might be some, something like him, this is the, the threats through the senses that he reveals things to us about himself. Psalm 34 is, is titled, Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Uh, the story is told in 1 Samuel 21 uh, when David fled from Achish, the king of Gath. Uh, Psalm 34 refers to Achish as Abimelech. Abimelech seems to have been the, the title of, uh, the, the word simply means my father is king. Uh, so it seems to have been the, the, the sort of the royal title. Sort of like in Egypt they call their kings Pharaoh. Whatever his particular name might be, he's Pharaoh. In the same way, Achish would have been the Abimelech of Gath, the, 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 the king of Gath. Now, David was fleeing at the time from Saul. He had been driven from the land, and he's in such desperate straits that he flees to Gath, of all places. Now, why would he flee to Gath? Gath was the home of Goliath. Now, in 1 Samuel 21, this is after David has killed Goliath. So David's thinking, where should I run and hide? Why don't I go to the hometown of the guy I killed in battle? They'll, they'll take me in, right? You're probably thinking, this sounds crazy, why would he do this? Do you happen to remember what Goliath had said? If I kill you, then you serve the Philistines. If you kill me, then we serve you. Now, if you've read the book of Samuel, you know that uh, most of the Philistines didn't take Goliath all that seriously. But if you keep reading the book of Samuel, you start noticing all of these Gittites who follow David. Gittites are people from Gath. Apparently, there were some people in Gath who said, well, you killed our hero, his word. We, we, there, were honor, there were honorable Philistines, believe it or not. And the honorable Philistines followed David. Why does David run to Gath? Because there were Philistines who have said, um, we, we follow you now. And so, now, obviously not all of them, because the king of Gath isn't so excited about having David in town. But nonetheless, David seems to think that Goliath's hometown is a safer place to be than anywhere in Israel. But when the servants of the king complain, uh, isn't this David uh, the, the, more popular than Saul? Didn't he slaughter tens of thousands of Philistines? And so David pretends to be insane, and Akish let him go, saying, Do I lack madmen? Get him out of here. So David was in the hands of his enemies. They could have killed him, and yet God delivered him from all his fears. And so David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now, um, in First Samuel 21, we hear that David had made marks on the gates of the city as he's pretending to be mad. Uh, it seems like it's saying that he was literally chewing on the city gates. So when it says that his praise shall continually be in my mouth, it's like, as I'm chewing on the city gates, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Not just when things are going well, but well, yeah, whether, I'm, whether I'm singing praises before God or chewing on the gates of Gath, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Psalm 34 begins by reorienting us to the most important thing. 
I will bless the Lord at all times. Not just when things are going well. Augustine asks, what prompts a person to bless the Lord at all times? Being humble. What does being humble consist in? Being unwilling to be praised in yourself. Any of us who want to be praised in ourselves are proud, but whoever is not proud is humble. And so David says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. David calls all Israel, all who worship the one true God, even these Gittites who are following him, to join him in exalting the name of the Lord. So Psalm 34 will be a psalm of rejoicing, celebrating the sovereignty of God and salvation. We do not boast in ourselves, we boast in the Lord. Now, how do we hear this? We all have a tendency to want others to know the good things, the important things, the things that we've done. David says, let the humble hear and be glad. You need to hear David's song of joy. And as you hear it, remember it's also the son of David's song of joy. Because Psalm 34 comes to its conclusion in Jesus Christ at the end of the song, the one whose bones were never broken. But yet, our Lord Jesus also had his Abimelech moment when he played the fool, as it were, and was arrested, convicted, and though in Jesus' case, he was executed. But he too was delivered by God and raised up to glory at his right hand. And verse 4, David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Seek first the kingdom of, of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I sought the Lord and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Verses 4 to 7 open and close with the idea of fear and deliverance. Verse 4 says that the Lord delivered me, first person singular, David, Jesus, from all my fears. Verse 7 says that those who fear the Lord, God's people, us, will be delivered. And then in the middle in verses 5 and 6, it's all about seeing and hearing. This poor man cried. You see, there's really only one time when you will not cry out to God. That's when you think you're rich. When you think, I got this. I don't need God. I can handle this on my own. If you're not crying out to God, it's because you think you have the resources to be able to handle your situation. If we acknowledge that we don't, if we say, this poor man cried, then the humble hear and are glad because he will hear if you will cry out to him. But what does it mean then to look to the Lord? David says, those who look to him are radiant. In Isaiah 60, the prophet speaks of the faces of God's people being radiant when God arises and shines his light upon them. It's an echo of, of Exodus 34 where Moses' face was radiant when he would come out from the tabernacle, from the holy place. 
when the light of God's glory shines upon the faces of his people, their faces are radiant. Think about it this way. God's glory is like the light of the sun. We are like the moon. We give off no light in, in ourselves. Our light is purely a reflected light. Moses' glory was a reflected glory. And that's the difference between Moses and Jesus. Because Jesus' glory is the glory of God himself. And we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus' glory is the uncreated glory of God himself, the radiance of the heavenly temple. And we see him who is crowned with glory and honor, seated at the right hand of God. But how do you see him? How do you look to Jesus? The same way David did, by faith, in the midst of trial and danger. As David is trapped in Gath, he looks to the Lord and was radiant. And his radiance has a, takes a, a funny-looking a funny form. He feigned madness. He pretends to be crazy. Now, maybe, maybe you don't need to feign madness. Maybe the pressures of life with family, work, and everything else going on is truly driving you crazy. But in your madness, in the midst of your craziness, as you look to Jesus, your face becomes radiant. For the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Whom do you fear? Do you fear the Lord? Or do you fear something else? Are you more concerned with what God thinks of you or with what others think of you? And so we come to this great verse, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Verses 8 to 10 open and close with the themes of eating and goodness. Verse 8 says that the Lord is good. Verse 10 says that those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And right in the middle, verse 9 says that those who fear the Lord have no lack. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Young lions may suffer hunger. Lions represent the most powerful and self-sufficient of all animals, but even they may suffer want and hunger. But God cares for those who take refuge in Him, for those who fear Him. And so taste and see that the Lord is good. And if you think of David chewing on the city gates of Gath, this image takes on a whole new meaning. Frothing at the mouth, pretending, pretending to be a madman, now as he's chewing on the city gates, he calls us, taste these city gates, they taste pretty good. Because as I, as I, as I taste this, I'm seeing that the Lord is good. Uh, seeing and hearing are the most prominent images in Psalm 34, but we are also called to taste in order to see the goodness of God. And if you think of tasting in the same sense that we think of spiritual seeing, spiritual hearing, how do you see Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father? By faith. How do you hear the voice of the Lord? By faith. How do you taste and see the goodness of God? By faith. By faith, we taste the heavenly banquet prepared by our Lord Jesus. By faith, we sit at wisdom's table and partake of her spiritual food. By faith, we long for the pure spiritual milk by which we grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, as Peter puts it. 
the goodness of God is, is not just something we see in creation. It's not just something we hear about as we read the Bible. The goodness of God is something we taste. And when you taste something, it becomes a part of you. And God has blessed us with all the bounty of his house, granting us the privilege of coming to his table where we are fed with the the true bread which came down from heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who fear the Lord and take refuge in him, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, will lack no good thing. And so in, in verse 11, David turns to the children. Children. Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. After all, if those who fear the Lord lack no good thing, then we need to hear and to learn the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1-9 through will follow this whole theme as the father teaches his son to fear the Lord. But what does it mean to fear the Lord? Put simply, it means to be more concerned with what God thinks of you than with what others think of you. Because... Whoever you fear is the one who will dictate how you live your life. If you're trying to please your boss, his opinion matters more to you than anything else, then you'll do anything to get your boss's approval. If you're trying to please your husband, you're afraid of losing his favor, then you'll do anything to get his approval. If you're trying to please your children and you're afraid of losing their favor, then you'll do anything. There's a pattern here. When we fear others then we wind up losing sight of what we're doing. When you're fixated on horizontal relationships, relationships with other people, all your relationships will go sideways. I mean, that's a, I mean in one sense, you know, we talk about relationships going sideways when they're not going well. But if you think about it, the imagery is perfect here. When you're focused on the horizontal your relationships are going sideways all the time. But when we remember to fear the Lord above all, we fear Him, then we can actually start to repair and heal relationships. And so David says, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? David's not saying the horizontal doesn't matter. He's saying, do you want the horizontal? Do you want daily life under the sun to be better than it would be otherwise? Well, then keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. If you would see good, then do good. Because when you fear the Lord, notice the first, this is the first point. Fear the Lord. That's the beginning. When you fear the Lord, then doing good becomes clearer. And you won't experience the Lord's favor and blessing if you ignore what he says. If you sit around waiting for God to bless you so that you can serve him, you may be in for a long wait. Because fearing God does not mean doing nothing. Fearing God means turning away from evil and doing good. David says, if you would learn the fear of the Lord, if you would taste and see his goodness, then walk in his ways. Do the things that he has set before you to do. But notice the order. God delivers his people, verses 4 through 10, and then calls them to walk in the fear of the Lord. You have to be rightly oriented toward God before you can even begin to figure out what direction to walk. Just think about any situation you're in right now. 
what are you supposed to do next? Well, if all you got is where you're standing right now and the situation you're in, what comes next? Ah, I think, how about this one? But when we are vertically oriented back to God, when we fear Him, when we care more about what He thinks of us than what anybody else thinks of us, that changes what happens in our horizontal relationships. Because if you don't fear God, if you're first concerned with what he thinks, what she thinks, well, then what you think may be the worst thing imaginable. So come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I can see the the child Jesus growing up in Nazareth singing Psalm 34 as he learned the fear of the Lord growing in wisdom and stature before God and man. He would have seen that if, if he wanted to see many days, then he needed to guard his tongue and pursue peace. Because Jesus is both the child who learned this lesson perfectly, but he now becomes the son of David who now sings this song to us as Jesus sings to you, Come you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Jesus sings this to us, calling us to fear the Lord and walk in his ways. And verses 15 to 18 help us understand why we should listen. Because the eyes and ears of the Lord are toward us. They are open to us. Verse 15 begins with that theme. And verse 18 closes with the nearness of God to those who are brokenhearted. And in the middle, well, what does God do when he hears and sees? The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their trouble. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. God is not just sitting there passively observing what we do. His eyes are open. His ears are toward the righteous and their cry. And once again, we see how the Psalms speak of the people of God as the righteous, in contrast to those who do evil. And, and when, when the Psalms call us the righteous, it's not just saying, oh, those who are justified by faith. The righteous are those who then also do good because they have been justified by faith. Because God has forgiven your sins. God has, yes, declared us righteous in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are called to turn away from evil and do good. Now, you might try to say, Pastor, okay, I I, I try, but I'm still a sinner. I'm not righteous. Well, of course you still sin. David did too. But if God has forgiven your sins and declared you righteous in Jesus Christ, then how dare you say that you're not righteous? Well, even my best works are filthy rags. Yes, but... God forgave that too. It's not just your sins of commission that God forgave. It's also your sins of omission, the things that you you forgot to do or didn't get around to do. If God has forgiven you of all your sins, then all he sees in you are those good deeds that he created you to do in Christ Jesus, and so he calls you righteous. And yes, we still sin. But when you sin, well, then that means that I'm not righteous anymore. Well, right, it does. What do you do? Well, you repent, because that's why 
he calls us to confess our sins. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If all unrighteousness is cleansed, then what is left? Righteousness. So that's why you are called the righteous, because all the unrighteousness is cleansed. It's also why confessing sin is important. It's also why repentance is important, because if you continue in the path of evil, that's a bad thing. I mean, that should be obvious. But So God forgives you and calls you righteous, so get used to it. He's not going to change his attitude toward you, so you'd better change yours toward him. If, if you still tend to think of yourself as under condemnation for your sins, then your experience of God is going to be pretty feeble because you're not tasting. But when you hear that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry, then you come with boldness before the Lord your God, trusting that he will hear and deliver you from all your troubles, just as he did for Jesus. Because there is a flip side to this. Verse 16 does say, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. If you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if your sins are not forgiven, if you are living in rebellion, then yes, the face of the Lord is against you. And his purpose is to cut off your memory from the earth. The point here is that those who reject the Lord Jesus have no legacy. They will be forgotten. In the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no memory of them. To cut off the memory of them from the earth. In verses 19 to 22, David concludes his song of praise by reminding us that many are the afflictions of the righteous. Now, notice how he uses the plural and the singular here. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him, singular, out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Now, he's been using the plural throughout most of the psalm. Now he goes singular. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Then he goes back to the plural. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. We see again the importance of the son of David, the Davidic singular, you might say, in the Psalms. Yes, we are the righteous, but only because the son of David is the righteous one, and God delivered him out of all his troubles. The Holy Spirit wants you to see Jesus here. John 19.36 quotes this psalm. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. John tells us, this is talking about Jesus. Our Lord Jesus was delivered from trouble and affliction. Not that God protected him from getting into trouble. I mean, he went all the way to the cross and through death and hell for us. But God delivered him from death and raised him up to his right hand. And that is our hope as well. We know that affliction will slay the wicked. We know that those who hate the righteous will be condemned. We know that none of those who take refuge in Jesus will be condemned. For what can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Paul didn't make that up. Paul knew the Psalms. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That's why Paul did there is therefore in Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul understands 
that in Jesus Christ the Lord has redeemed the life of his servant and therefore those who hope in him have the hope of eternal life. And so let us taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Let us pray. O Lord our God, help us because we... We are too often forgetful of your great mercy to us in Jesus. So help us to taste and see your goodness, to know your kindness, to digest your mercy that indeed we might live out of that fear of you and love for you, that in all things we might draw near to you, taking refuge in Jesus because you have seated him at your right hand. And we pray in his name. Amen.